Well, again, I want to welcome everybody who's here today. Um, old faces, it's good to see it again. Um, new faces, it's good to see half your face. I'm, I'm curious what the other half looks like. Uh, but I am just so glad that you're here. And if you're joining us online today, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. We would love for you just to jump into the chat with our hosts and let them know where you're watching from. Uh, we're grateful to have you with us as well. And my hope and my prayer for everyone here, new, old, online, is simply, you know this, no matter where you are in your faith today, that you would be able to take one step towards Jesus, because that is what we are all about here. And today is the second week of our homecoming series, a, a series all about what it means to come home, come back to, to the school for us, but then look at different pictures of what home looks like throughout the Bible. And I confessed to you last week that um, I've never been to a homecoming before. I have another confession on top of that. Not only have I not been to a homecoming, but I tend to kind of live vicariously and really enjoy movies that, that have like high school dances and college dances. And I'm like, <gasps> and so I, I just get enthralled with them for some reason, thinking, is this what it's like? And one of my all-time favorite movie scenes is, uh, you know, dance scenes is from a 1985 classic, Back to the Future. Back to the Future. Um, any Back to the Future fans here? Just one. I don't need to get into the sequels. Those are a waste. Um, okay, so there is a major, major dance that everything kind of culminates in, in Back to the Future. Does anybody remember the name of this dance? Enchanted Under the Sea. Oh, Joe Fry for the win. And, and my favorite part was, you can't see this, but I see that he wanted to be heard, and that mask came down to here to make sure he was heard. And so, the enchantment under the sea. This is the dance. This is the one moment where, in 1955, George McFly has to um, somehow come up with the plan to get Lorraine Baines to this dance. They kiss each other, and the entire McFly story begins, right? But there's a mishap where a time machine from 30 years later, and I cannot figure out if there's ever a movie where a time machine does not cause a problem. Um, there, it always seems to be a problem. So if you can do this, don't do it. It just makes problems. So their son from 30 years later mishaps and ends up 30 years before and messes up the timeline by instead of allowing his mom's attention to be geared towards his dad, he steals his mother's affection. Does this gross anybody else out besides me? This is weird, right? Like, who writes this stuff? But he quickly learns that, like, I, I need to figure out how to help my dad woo my mom, but my dad has no courage. My dad has no spine. My dad is just basically a rollover and take it and just deal with it. Final, do all your homework and have to... It's the worst. And so what he does is he begins to coach his dad, give him, like, little steps to take. Here's what I want from you. Try this. Try that. And his dad can't do it. His dad finally comes to a place where George is like, I'm not doing it. And it takes a visit from Darth Vader from Planet Vulcan to scare him in the middle of the night to I think it's Van Halen on a Walkman. If you don't know what a Walkman is, um, it's like a, it, there's no way to explain it. It's the best, okay? It's the best. But it's this moment where he scares him and then finally George begins to turn. You know this moment where he takes it seriously and he comes to this place of scripting out good notes, figuring out what's the next thing I need to do. And instead of this character that we're like, oh my gosh, grow a spine, we find that there's a character who's starting 
to woo us, right? We see him strengthening. We see him taking each step and going, we're rooting for him. We want him to not just like kiss Lorraine and, and punch Biff in the face. What do we want from him? The moment that he kisses Lorraine at that dance, it's not about playing a nice song up in front for his son. It's this moment that we're rooting for him to go, we want this for you because we want you 30 years later to, be tell, to tell a better story to your kids. We want a better story for you. And what's this going to look like because you're different now than you were before? What story are you going to tell? And I think that we all root for this. And we all want this so bad for George McFly at this dance to culminate. Because I think that we all want a better story to tell. We all think maybe down the road when I, when I get to tell my kids about this season of my life, what kind of story will it be? I want it to be a story worth telling. I want it to mean something. Here's the truth. The steps we take become the stories we tell. The steps we take become the stories that we tell. And to explore this idea a little bit deeper in regards to homecoming, what I would love to do is to look at a story of Jesus where in this story, everyone is taking steps and there's taking them in all sorts of directions. And if you would, and if you have your Bibles with you, I would love for you to turn into the biography of Jesus written by Mark. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, that's okay. We would love to give you one. We have some in the back and you can just raise your hand. It's our gift to you. If you don't have one, we would love for you to have it. Uh, we believe that all of life is here. And Here's what's great is the story we're going to look at is actually found in three of the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, Matthew, if you go look this up later, is going to have two people in the story. But Mark and Luke really just focus on the one who talks the most, who's the most verbal. So we're going to look at that one together. So as you're turning you know, to Mark, the Gospel of Mark will be in chapter 5. As you're turning there, it's important to kind of set this up for you. This is going to be near the end of the first year that Jesus was out doing miracles and you know, teaching. He's done a lot of miracles and a lot of teaching in this first year. People um, who were sick have been healed of those sicknesses. People who were, um, you know, couldn't walk were able to walk. Couldn't hear were able to hear. Even um, there's, there's a story about someone who was dead being raised to life. So we've got this miraculous things happening. And all the people who are around Jesus are amazed because he's teaching differently. And they're intrigued by him. So he gathers these people who are always trying to figure him out now. Like, who is this? Because he teaches with authority and he demonstrates it. And we learned last week that he's surrounded by a multitude of people, sinners, religious leaders, uh, and everything in between. But I think some of the people who are trying to figure him out the most are the disciples. They're always watching because they cannot figure him out. And things are about to get really real for them at the end of this first year. Because Jesus is going to say, listen, we, we need to go on a little trip here. So I need you to get the boat ready, and we're going we're gonna to go for a little sail. And in chapter 4, we read that they all get into this boat, and it's a tiny little boat, a fishing boat. And as they get into this boat to, to take their little ride, this huge storm comes upon the lake. And in, in this storm comes in, these professional fishermen are freaking out. They're trying to bail water, and Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. He's got his head on a pillow. He's totally resting. And he wakes up to the wind howling, the rain coming, and this panicked scene of disciples just spinning all over the place. 
And he stands up and he literally says, silence, be still. Now, if you've ever read the story, you know he's talking to the wind and the rain. But let's be real. If you're a disciple sitting in that boat, do you ever hear, this is great. As friends, do you ever hear your, parent, your friend's parents yell at your friend? Right? Really weird. And you sit and you're like, oh, don't yell at me. I think this is a moment where Jesus is kind of stopping the storm, but all the disciples are like, wait, me? Silence still? I got, well, did I, what did I do? Everything stops, and the disciples are in awe. Because not only can this man raise the dead, not only can he do miracles with people, his very voice controls nature. It doesn't say it here, but I imagine in this moment they are terrified as they become more aware of who Jesus is and what he does. And with one step into the boat began a story for them that's going to be worth telling. This is where we're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 5. We'll start in just verse 1. It says this, So they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. Um, a quick detail of this verse that uh, you and I may not pick up, but the original readers would have uh, really honed in on. There's a phrase in here that this phrase that's used um, is used, it's actually still used today in this region. The phrase that Jesus uses 2,000 years ago is the other side of the lake. Okay, if you have your Bibles, you want to underline in that, circle that there, the other side of the lake. Uh, this is the lake that they're talking about is Lake Tiberias. It's also known as the Sea of Galilee. And when you, whether you want to call it a lake or a sea, this is where Jesus um, says we're going. And this is what's important. If you look at the top star, this is where they're starting. And if you look at the bottom star, that's where they're going. Okay, so they're literally going across the lake. And what's interesting is when they say the other side, the sea that you see here, as well as the Jordan River that's going to go north from there, this divides the land that's there. And, and it divided it to everyone. If you look at that map, to on the left-hand side would be Israel and the Jewish people, and on the right-hand side would be everyone else. They would call them Gentiles. There was... And there still is extreme hostility towards the people on the other side. If you find yourself in Israel at any point, they will refer to the people on the other side of the river, the other side of the lake. But if you find yourself in most other Middle Eastern countries, they'll refer to Israel as the other side of the lake, the other people. They don't even want to mention who they are and it's on the other side, the people on the other side. The disciples knew where they were going. And when they got in the boat, which makes, honestly, this step to follow Jesus even more important, in my opinion, they're headed to the shores of what they would consider the enemy, someone not even worthy of their time that they do not want to be around. And here's what happens when they arrive on the other side. Let's pick it up in verse 2. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, he, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered 
among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Now, this is a lot to take in, right? This, this feels like a lot. And I promise you today, if you're like, whoa, 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 demons and possession and like, what is this? There's a lot of questions when it comes to these types of topics in the Bible. And these questions are great questions. And here's what I'm most excited about is after this series, we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare and talking about, you know, this type of stuff so that we have a good understanding as a community. What does that mean? Where is this battle and what does that look like? So if you have questions, write them down on your program because we're going to get there. I promise. I promise. But if this idea is somewhat new to you and you're thinking, I don't know, like this whole demon thing, Jimmy, this, this feels like something that would happen, you know, like in a fairy tale a long time ago in a land land far on the other side. You know, this is not for us. The truth is, this region still exists. This town still exists. And Crossbridge, you sent a small team from here that actually was walking around this town a couple weeks ago. Here's a picture of, of this team. And as they were sitting here, this city that we're in is called Umkais. And you could see the lake that's referenced here uh, right over Jeff's uh, right shoulder or left if you're looking at it. That's the beginning of this sea running all the way past Brett's, Brett's head, uh, which really is tall. Um, man, he's tall. It goes all the way out over there. And this city, Umkais, at this time or this region of the Gerasenes was one of the 10 most populated cities in all of this region on the other side. This right here is the spot. And so what we have is that Jesus and his, and his disciples, they land in enemy territory. Their welcoming party is a demon-possessed man who lives with dead people. If the disciples carried any prejudice like the rest of their nation did, which I think they did, this would be confirmation of a lie that they've already believed. That, like, you want me to tell you about the people on the other side? They're all demon-possessed crazy people who live in tombs. That, that's who this is. I, I will say, we got to walk inside those tombs. Uh, maybe this is the adventurousness of... Uh, you know, Mary Beth, that's like, oh, let's go in, let's do this. So uh, we got an opportunity to walk inside those tombs. Anybody else think that's creepy? Okay, yes, it was, it was, it was creepy. I mean, you just feel things in there. You see things in there. I, 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 I grabbed a picture of what was inside because, honestly, I definitely saw something. And, uh, oh, <laughs> Pastor Will's not a demon, I promise, okay? He's not a demon that we found in the tomb, uh, this is what the tomb looked like. And I, I, I grabbed this picture because it was just one of these moments where the sun came in and he was standing there. And I was like, man, I love that one of my best friends that a pastor at our church shines the light of Jesus in such dark places all around the world. I'm like, this is, that's my friend. And it was really cool. I love you, man. I do. Uh, but the man in the story does not look like this does not stand so confidently. What we find when you read actually in the other books in Luke and in Matthew is that this man, in the other accounts, he's naked. He's covered in cuts from self-harming himself. The scars from each time that he's broken the chains and the shackles that were used to contain him. And in verse six, we read that when Jesus was still, 
at some distance away, the man saw him and ran to meet him. This, this ran to meet him here in the Greek, this is a word that's used, um, in, it's a war term a lot of times, that ran to meet is when two battles, two, two armies are coming together. They, they come to meet, they run to meet each other. Think of the moment in Braveheart when they all come together, or any movie when it's like, how, that moment of this, that's the moment of run to meet. That's the word that's being used here. There's an intentionality to the marching of this man, the running of this man at Jesus. Uh, I'm pretty sure at this moment, the disciples were like one foot on land, one foot in boat ready to push off. You know what I mean? I, I think a lot of us would be in this place going, all right, crazy people are running at us, naked with scar- I'm out, man. I'm out. Put me in the boat with the storm again. But look at what the man does. When the man was still some distance away, the man saw him. Or when Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. And then Jesus demanded, What's your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. This man is, let's just be candid, he's in so much more than just physical pain. He is a pawn here being used by these demons, and they refer to themselves as legion, which again is another uh, battle term. It's a Roman legion, a unit that ranged anywhere between like, you know, five to 6,000 people to, to up to 11 or 12,000 people in this unit that would travel. This is the way that they conquered the ancient world was by using these legions. This was a battle tactic. So the man doesn't have an issue that he's dealing with. He has a battle raging on inside, inside him. No wonder he runs to meet Jesus, right? And the demons here, I don't know what their goal is, but they have an agenda. They have a goal, and Jesus is about to mess with it, and they know it. And in their limited power, they have caused an immense amount of chaos in this man, an immense amount of chaos around the region because of this man. I mean, he's experienced physical harm, mental anguish, social isolation. I'm sure at this point, he's the scary monster that these 10 populated cities all talk about. He, he's the punchline to the scary story to keep your kids in and not sneaking out because that guy will come get you. No one's coming to feed him. No one's coming to bathe him. No one's coming to help him. The demons that are inside of him, the one whose power has caused all this damage and forced him to be completely abandoned and isolated, these demons are the ones that bow before Jesus. They know who he is and they announce it, son of the most high God. They know who they're dealing with. They didn't have to see him calm a storm to stop the wind and the waves to know that his power is greater than their power. They don't stand a chance. They know it. And so what do you do if you come to a battle and you realize you've already lost? Well, wisdom would tell you you try to negotiate terms. Yeah, you're bigger than you are. Yeah, yes, stand bigger than you are. Jesus still wins. They lose. If you guaranteed to lose, the best thing to do is to cut your losses and be like, all right, so let's make a deal. What do you need? 
And so they kind of tried to bargain with Jesus. Some of your translations will say, if you look at this, that, that would you send us into the abyss or, send, or don't send us to the abyss, don't send us to the pit. This is a place of eternal torment reserved for Satan and his demons. And this place of torment that's there, Jesus listens to their request. He hears it. And on negotiating terms, he says, okay, fine. Fine, I'll grant your request. And I'll give you permission. You've asked to enter the pigs on the side of the hill. You may enter the pigs. And at this moment, we read that 2,000 pigs take off towards the hill, plunge themselves off the hill into this lake, and they drown. This obviously causes a scene for the people taking care of the pigs, right? This, this is an issue. And so what, what would you do if all your pigs just committed suicide? You go to the town for help to say, look what the crazy guy's doing again. Like, this is even crazier than we thought, and, and you're going to tell everyone this story along the way. And so while they go tell that story, and they go get help, I've always kind of wondered, why, why didn't Jesus just send them into the abyss? Why did he even entertain an option? That doesn't make any sense when you have all the power and all the authority. Why would you just, why would you let the pigs die? I think it's important to ask questions of the Bible like this. It really is. And as I've wondered this and thought about it, I, th I think there's two, at least for me, there's two reasons why Jesus would do this. The first one is, um, I think he does it to demonstrate that the demons were real. And that this deliverance for this man was genuine. This man, right here, and the disciples, an entire town, who's going to come and see what just happened because they're not going to believe the story, right? You can't just write this off as an emotional experience. Well, you didn't get enough sleep, and you showed up, and, and, and the, the pastor was real emotional. So you made a decision, and, and that wasn't real. It was emotional. You know, this guy, it was just an emotional moment. That change wasn't real. By seeing this happen, it, it, it confirms there was, there was a deliverance for this man that was genuine. And, and the second reason is, at least for me, I think that Jesus gave permission for them to go into the pigs to prove once again to anyone watching. And I need you to hear me on this. If you're watching online, here's what I need you to know. Satan is a destroyer. Satan's a destroyer. He is at war, and in his limited power to destroy anything and everything around him, he will do whatever he can to do that. It doesn't matter if it's pigs, if it's people. Every death without the hope of life is a victory for him. Jesus exposes these demons. He frees this man, and you know what step he's taken? Just one out of the boat. He's taken a single step. That's all that he's taken at this point. I don't know how long it took for this story to spread, but I'm assuming it was extremely fast because any news about someone who's possessed and all these you know, suicidal, that news is going to travel, right? And that news is probably going to become even crazier by the time it hits the town and the cities around it. And you're going to go, what just happened? But when they would show up, when they rush to see if the story is true, this is what we read in verse 15. We pick it up in this story. It says, A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there, fully clothed and perfectly sane. And they were all afraid. 
Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. These people from the other side, they gather to see the story about the possessed man. And, And instead, what do they find when they come to this shore? A Jewish rabbi with a boat full of Jewish followers. They're in the boat. (laughs) People from the other side, and then they see the man from their horror stories. And instead of him running, instead of him attacking, instead of him screaming and cutting and howling, it tells us that he's clothed, he's calm, he's completely in his right mind, maybe, for the first time in his entire life. And Mark tells us that this made everyone who saw it, what? Afraid. They were afraid. You see, the disciples were afraid of the power of Jesus over the natural world. This town is afraid of Jesus' impact on their spiritual and on their economic world. I just have a feeling that they were thinking... I know that man's story. I know how messed up he is. He's just pretending right now. This can't be real. Nothing can change a man's life like this. We'll see if he sticks with this Jesus story and how long it'll last. I'd give it a week. Maybe some of them were thinking, if following this Jewish rabbi means I might lose some of my income, that there's things in my life that he might want to get rid of and it might cost me or the people around me, uh, That's too much. I'm not in. They were afraid of Jesus. And because of it, we read one of the most heart-wrenching verses, I think, in all of the Bible. Seriously. Look at verse 17. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and to leave them alone. He has brought life and light into this man's life. An entire city and an entire region is going to be different because of the deliverance of this man. They're no longer going to have to section off this place, fear it, walk around it, worry about who's going to try to chain this guy up again. Jesus didn't just deliver this man. He delivered the entire region. But what do they want? They want to be left alone. And Jesus accepts their request. Jesus accepts their request. He's not going to force himself on this city. And so he turns towards this boat filled with what I I have to imagine are very wide-eyed, mouth-open, already oars in the water, ready disciples. And the story closes at verse 18 with, and Jesus was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Note this man is begging Jesus again. But this time his heart is not from the demons. His heart is his own. He says, I want to go with you, even if it does mean I'm going to the other side. I know where you're going. I will go back. And in verse 19, but Jesus said, no, no, go home to your family. Tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the 10 towns of that region. And he began to proclaim the great, things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed at what he told them. I find it very interesting 
how Jesus answers the request of the demons and the, the citizens of this region with yes. He, he listens to their requests with a yes. But the man who's been delivered gets a no. Jesus, he wants to follow you. He wants to be with you. He wants to take a step into the boat and be with you. Why would you say no? Jesus says, no, no, no. I need you to do two things. The first thing is go home and tell your family. Go home and tell your family. And the second thing, here's what I want you to do, is to tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. If I was this man, I think I'd rather be going to the boat too. I do. Go home? How long has it been since he's been home? At, at what point was it too dangerous for his family to be around him and, and, and his family gave up on him? When, when did that happen? Would they be terrified when he walked through the door? Would they, would they try to get the chains they reserved for him out? Would they even welcome him back home? How in the world do you gather the courage to go home when your whole story has been in the tombs? Well, I think it's the same thing that we learned last week. Every single homecoming starts with a turn and a step. Whether it's a younger son who's lost it all, or a lost son battling his demons in the tombs. It all starts with turning towards Jesus and taking your first step, and then another step, and then another step. And as I look at this story, I see people taking steps and steps and steps in all different directions that determine the story that they are going to tell. And if steps determine the stories we tell the disciples, they stepped into a boat with Jesus to go to the other side, and their story was one of risk and uncertainty. We watched Jesus step out of the boat for a single person. That's all, a single person. That's a story that's filled with compassion. A demon-possessed man who ran with lots of steps at Jesus, a story of aggression and battle. And when delivered from his demons, this right-minded man stepped into a new set of clothes. New set of clothes, one leg at a time. This is the story of compassion and freedom. Concerned and skeptical citizens step towards Jesus to force him to leave. It's a story of fear and change. And when this man went to step in the boat to follow Jesus, Jesus instead called him to turn and to step towards his own homecoming. This is a story of commissioning, giving him new purpose in life. That's a story worth telling. What I love most is that this man does not just stay at home. I believe he goes home. I believe, I have to believe that his family welcomed him back in because there is change. And when they saw his and heard his story about the good things the Lord had done in his life, he doesn't just stay home. We read that he went around to the 10 cities, this place called the Decapolis, the 10 most populated areas, the place where his story was likely told as the horror story. He gets to go and say, I know it was that way, 
But I stepped towards Jesus and everything changed. He didn't have evangelism training. He didn't have discipleship training. He didn't have a deep knowledge of all the Bible and all the answers. What did he have? What did he have? His story. His story touched by Jesus because it took one step. And he kept stepping. And I believe that for us today, The steps we take determine the stories we tell. What steps are you taking in your life with Jesus? Because it's one thing to be welcomed home into church together and to say there's a place for you here. But if we're not stepping towards Jesus together, where are we stepping? Because that will be the story we tell our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids. And I have to believe that this man's story was told by people And what greater place could we be? What better character in a story could we be than the person who fell in love with Jesus and stepped wherever he called us to go? Because the story is no longer about us, it's about him. And as we close our time today in the word, I want to ask you, What excuses do you make to stay seated in the tombs battling your demons? Why do you hide and think, God can't use this. It's it's too raw. It's too real. It's too dark in that tomb. And so you hold on to it yourself and you fight your battle alone. When will you turn and step towards Jesus? And if you have stepped and turned towards Jesus and you have dedicated your life to him, when's the last time you shared that story with someone? Because the truth is, this man didn't go invite people to church, did he? This man didn't go and invite people and say, well, if you come, my pastor, I'll tell you the story of Jesus. No, he shows up where they are and shares his story because it's what he has. If you follow Jesus, you are commissioned to go where you are, at work, at school, at your lunch tables, at your homecoming, in your home, to share not all that you know about the Bible, but all that God has done and the graciousness he has showed to you. I don't know, this is a story worth telling. This is a story worth inviting people into. And so, have you turned to follow him? And if you have, have you turned to those around you to share that story? Because the steps we take determine the stories we tell. What story will be told about you? Will you pray with me before we take communion together? God, I thank you so much that you have commissioned us to share your story. Not our story, your story. A story of freedom, forgiveness, mercy, a single step at a time. I thank you that our stories are not stories of perfection, but stories of submission. And when anyone can point and we say we follow Jesus and they're going to say, yeah, but I saw you do this yesterday. Or you just said this, we could say, I know. I am a sinner. 
And I'm so grateful for the grace of God. I'm trying to submit to him more and look like him. I'm sorry. God, what grace is there in asking for forgiveness, not just from you, but from each other, that people can't hold our stories against us, but because of your grace, we hold you up because you win every battle. We don't have to negotiate. We don't have to make excuses. We just need to keep stepping towards you to look like you, to love like you, to learn like you, to speak like you. Jesus, I pray a special blessing over every person who's here today. For every person who's watching online right now. That you, Holy Spirit, would fill them with the courage to share the story of Jesus with those around them. Not to hide in the tombs and battle alone, but to know that they are in a community that is inviting. That there is a story worth stepping into that's bigger than their own. That they could step out of the darkness into the light and shine because of you and your life. Jesus, send us in a way that we would draw people to you because of your grace, your mercy, your love, and your power and authority. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. To close, we'll be celebrating just as we do um, every a week with communion together. And so uh, if you grabbed communion on the way in, it was on the table. If you didn't, we have just a little bucket and um, we, we would love to just, if you don't have communion, we would love to give that to you and make sure everybody has it. And uh, if you have uh, placed your trust in Jesus, we want to welcome you to the table. And I heard this week a, a great phrase that stuck with me. You know, as disciples of Jesus, we're not about building bigger walls, we're about building a bigger table. Like, and, and that's what communion is all about, is having a bigger table, not so that we could put more food on it, but that more people would be able to sit and say, there's a place for me here. And so if you have placed your trust in Jesus, there's a seat for you at the table. And so as we celebrate communion today, we do exactly what Jesus did sitting around the table. Jesus held the bread up with his disciples at Passover, and he said, this is my body that's been broken for you, telling the story to them before they ever knew what was really coming, a story they were invited to. Would you break the bread with me and listen to that crack for your body and mine? Thank you, Jesus. And then he took the cup, and he held it up, and this is the last cup, the cup of celebration, the cup of redemption at Passover. And he said to his disciples, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Crossbridge family, this represents why we no longer live in the tombs. That we can walk around with our head held high, not because of what we've done, but because of who Jesus is and the forgiveness of our sins, that every day his mercy is new, and that's a story worth telling. Amen? Amen. We celebrate, and we celebrate Jesus today. Let us eat and drink together. Would you stand with me? Today I pray 
that the joy of coming home and being together here and celebrating together would pale in comparison to your times with Jesus this week. Not just times as you're soaping and working through scripture and reading his story, but that his story would be lived out through you with each step you take this week. Would your steps be worth telling in the story for your future, for generations to come, not about you, but about Jesus. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.